we got the alternative energy free autonomy and welcome to the radioactive show produced at the studios of 3CR Melbourne and heard nationally on the community radio network I'm Emma Crunch and today's radioactive show was made on Naitahu land in Ototahi which is also known as Christchurch in Aotearoa or New Zealand I've been living here in Aotearoa since January and in effect I've moved from being a settler on Wurundjeri country in uh, also known as Melbourne in Victoria to one on Naitahu, Waitaha and Ngati Mamo land. A significant difference in the settler presence between the two nations is that in so-called Australia uh, there is no treaty or treaties whereas the settlers and Maori in Aotearoa signed a treaty at Waitangi in 1840, which is known as the Treaty of Waitangi, or in Te Reo Māori, Te Tariti. Today I'll be sharing with you an interview with Catherine Peat. She is a Pākia, which is the Te Reo Māori word uh, that roughly translates to white settler, resident of Ototahi Christchurch, and Catherine's been a long-term advocate and educator for the Treaty of Waitangi, particularly what it means for living in Aotearoa today. If you could begin by introducing yourself and giving us a short explanation of how you came to be doing, I think you call it treaty work or... Yes, hmm. that's what I do call it. Um, well, I think it's because I married a Welshman, and I went to live in a country that my mother called the United Kingdom, and I found that it wasn't quite what I'd expected, and in fact I felt a bit of a foreigner, and that was a new experience for me, because I think I felt that New Zealand and England were sort of so deeply connected that it wouldn't make a difference. We were at this stage living in England. And so I learned about um, things that were different in England, language that was different. People talked about flip-flops. I talked about jandals. <laughs> a bit like Australians think about uh, coolers and we think about chili bins. Is that right? I <laughs> think Excuse, it's just, yeah. Yes, Kate, whatever. Um, and uh, so um, this was a new experience for me. And when I was teaching at one of the big comprehensive schools down there, I was the one with the accent these were the things that were sort of a new idea for me. It sounds very naive, and it was. I was very naive. Anyway, that was part of it. But then when we went back later and lived in a country called Wales, um, of course my husband had, had uh, connections there, and I learned the stories of colonisation of the Welsh by the English. And I was deeply shocked. Mm. And it, it um, opened me up to asking the same question when we came back to live in this country in 1976. Um, that, that, you know, had this happened to Māori? And it had never occurred to me that it had. Mm. Because we had been brought up in a society where we learned Māori stick games and things like this. And... and the idea was that New Zealand had the best relations in the world and this was what went on. So it was new to me to learn about colonisation 
And I was um, quite shocked, really, to learn the detail of things. And it just so happened that this was good timing because the Waitangi Tribunal was just set up in 1975, just a year before we returned. And that was the very first time there'd been an official place for Māori to tell their stories. Mm. The rules were such then that they weren't allowed to look back at historical issues they were only allowed to consider um, breaches of the treaty from 1976 onwards, 1975 onwards. So I got into um, this because uh, Sir Paul Reeves was the first Māori Governor-General and he um, was interested in, in identifying some people who were not Māori who were interested in, in the facts and figures and I put my hand up to be interested. Mm. And so we set up a little organisation called Project Waitangi in, um, oh, whenever it was, early 1980s and we'd had the Springbok tour not long before so connections were made with the uh, organisations that we'd been part of before that this whole thing on the treaty was the focus, citizens against racial inequality and citizens for racial equality it was, mm. um, care. And there were, were lots of other organisations that were looking at that side of racism. But the treaty was a different, a little bit different framework. Mm. And many people thought it was a bit of a fraud um, some people said, you know, it's not worth going for because it had never been honoured to that date. And after all, this was hundreds of hundred and something years after the treaty had been signed. This is the Radioactive Show, and this show has been created in Ototahi Christchurch. And I'm speaking with Catherine Pete, an organiser with Network Waitangi. She's just been recalling how she became involved in work around the Treaty of Waitangi. Catherine just referred to the Waitangi Tribunal, which was established in 1975 to investigate breaches of the Treaty of Waitangi. Listeners may or may not be familiar with with this. And my next question to Catherine asked her for a bit of a background to the Treaty of Waitangi. Basically... Um, the 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 whole thing really started in terms of relationship with the Western world. Um, the, when when after Australia had been colonised, um, then um, there was quite a lot of interchange between Maori and the um, British people in in Sydney, and those relationships were quite. Um, I mean, they were, they were warm um, in many cases, not all the time. Um, but to cut a very long story short, those relationships led to Māori making contact and actually visiting Europe. I mean, there were over a 1,000 Māori who had travelled to Europe before the treaty was signed in 1840. Um, and there was a, a, a sort of a, a concern amongst Māori here in before 1840 that the settlers, and some of them were from Australia, were coming to New Zealand and not necessarily fitting into Māori society um, in what one might call a wise way. Mm. <laughs> and so um, there was a sense of, goodness me, you know, what is this new lot of people going to do here? And by 1835, 
Māori had sort of made a relationship with the King of England at that time, and they had said to him, "Look, we would like we would like to have a um, relationship with you," and the um, that's all set out in this 1835 declaration. And that was a declaration that was recognised by Britain, uh, and I think the language that was used in the treaty instructions when um, Hobson was sent out to actually make a treaty with Māori from Britain um, was, these people have got title to the soil and sovereignty, now go and make a treaty with them. Mm. And it, there was that was really, there were virtually no preconditions. It was to be a, a pretty grown-up relationship, really. So that was the ideal it didn't pan out. Mm. Within two years, it was dishonoured. And um, so that was uh, quite a, you know, the history of the treaty has not been um, a good one. Catherine Peet speaking here about the lead-up to the signing of the Treaty of Waitangi in 1840 in Aotearoa, New Zealand. I recently did a workshop with Network Waitangi about the Treaty of Waitangi. The workshop was held over two Saturdays and with that time we were able to cover the, his- cover the history of Te Tariti, including the shameful disregard shown to it by the colonial New, New Zealand government in years following. It was interesting to learn more about the context in which Australia was invaded by the British Crown in comparison to the experience in Aotearoa, and I think it will be useful here to describe some for further context. So the doctrine of discovery was the doctrine originally based on a declaration by the Pope in 1493, which in summary declared it lawful to take land from non-Christians and also relegated non-Christians as not human. And it was that doctrine that was the source of the Terra Nullius Declaration, made by James Cook in Australia in 1770, and then used to justify dispossession and decimation of traditional owners of the many Aboriginal nations in so-called Australia. In terms of Aotearoa, the doctrine of discovery was also influential in early days of European arrival, However, by the 1800s, it was undergoing critique by some in Britain. And this was partially because of the growth of the anti-slavery campaign and also that stories of colonial atrocities were reaching the British public and leaving some doubt about Britain's colonial exploits. So it was in this context that Māori leaders wrote and travelled to Britain to meet with the Crown and demanded that their sovereignty be recognised. The Declaration of Independence in 1835 and the Treaty of Waitangi in 1840 together form a counterpoint to the doctrine of discovery and how it was experienced in Aotearoa. Let's now return to my discussion with Catherine as she elaborates on her hopes for the potential of a treaty framework to create significant change in Aotearoa. With um, a framework established in 1840, building on the um, initiatives of 1835, uh, where the the, the coloniser recognised that the Indigenous people here 
uh, had title to the soil and sovereignty. And mm. that, that is a huge thing. Mm. And so this was an attempt to set up a form of governance for people who were not Māori so that they could feel as if they belonged. And that is really a very generous thing of an Indigenous people to do, to open their arms and say, come on in, the water's fine, let's work it out. And they came up with really five parts to the treaty. Very briefly, it's about living peacefully and um, then a new form of governance can be established, provided it doesn't stomp on the previous and established retained authority, Mm. and that stays intact. And then those are the first three parts of the treaty. Live peacefully, set up your own form of governance, make sure you don't undermine the retained authority that Indigenous people had, and then... Um, make sure that whatever you do set up is accessible to those Indigenous people because they didn't much like the look of Australia. And the Indigenous people were literally excluded. Mm. And so this was a lesson to be learned. And then the fifth part of the treaty is about respecting people's belief systems and acting gently with each other. So I always think the preamble about peace and the final article about looking after each other's spirituality is a really lovely surround to the commitment to having um, an autonomy for people who are not Indigenous, Mm. uh, provided they don't damage the retained autonomy of people who are yeah I found in the recent workshop it really interesting to understand that begin to understand that content of the treaty and that it really was an understanding of the settlers pretty much managing their own affairs more so than coming in and certainly not like managing Maori it was that it was even a, a response to some of the um, the misdemeanors and things that were Ooh. happening, and settlers coming in and being irresponsible, and so that the um, iwi and Maori leaders were like, "Well, we need you guys to take care of yourselves and let us do yeah. our thing." And well, I think they were a bit fed up, really, mm. you know, and and they didn't want to interfere, so they they said, "Well, you do it yourselves," you know, and um, I think that that was again an act of generosity. They were also extremely good at feeding the early settlers, mm. um, allowing them the use of land. Um, and but there did need to be some framework around it because it was a bit running amok uh, in the late eighteen thirties. Mm. It was it needed attention. So this was a trust. And remember, that, well, don't remember, but you know there were about. 150,000, 200,000 Māori and about 2,000 settlers. So Māori wouldn't have thought there was a threat, you know, but then with colonisation, more and more and more people were sent here. And also that despite the generosity of that treaty, um, I agree with you, you know, there was no obligation for Māori to actually offer to share the country. Um, And yet even that was... Fairly soon after the signing, it wasn't it wasn't honoured oh, by the no, settler government. It was terrible, you know, mm. just absolutely terrible. In eighteen fifty two, there was actually a constitution 
brought in by the settler government to override it, mm. you know. And, and in 1877, it was actually declared a legal nullity. I mean, mm. that's what the justice system, so-called, got up to. And there were people who were not Māori, Pākehā people, who we call them, who are, if they're of European descent, um, there were people who said, that is not British justice. There were people who were indignant. Um, and so there's been a tradition of people standing up for the justice issues. They haven't been successful, um, but the the uh, Chancellor of the University of Canterbury at one stage paid for himself to go up to Parliament and say, this is not right. So there have been people who've tried and failed mm. to honour that that early relationship that was established. And I'm not trying to be um, over-emphasising of that fact, but I think it's important when you're doing this work in any country to feel that you're part of a a tradition of, of, of a message of justice. And you would refer to yourself as a tangata tariti? Yes, in some places. Okay. <laughs> um, um, I'm wondering about um, the treaty and how it places non-Māori people in Aotearoa um, and how you see your position or explain what the Tangata Tariti would suggest and also perhaps what obligations or um, what responsibility you see uh, as having and how that motivates the work you've been doing with Network Waitangi. Um, in terms of my understanding of Tangata Tiriti, it's, a, it's, a, it's an expression that came from um, Sir Eddie Dury, as, as far as I know, that was where it came from. He was asked by a person of Chinese descent um, what he would, how he would name himself uh, in this country when he'd own, he heard the person speaking only talking about tangata whenua and everyone else. Mm. And, um, the, and tangata whenua. Is the Māori word for the indigenous people in this country. Māori mm. was actually a word that um, we understand came from the, the visit of, of Captain Cook. And he had a, I think, Tahitian navigator on board um, whose language was able to enabled communication and and that business of being able to say well who are you and they say well we're just the normal folks around here just the ordinary people around here mm. uh, and the word for normal or ordinary in today is Maori mm. so that Captain Cook gave it a capital M but anyway they Sir Eddie Dury had referred to himself during this address as Tangata Whenua people of the land and so this Chinese person who'd been here for some time said, well, I feel I belong. And he said, well, but you're tangata tiriti. And the reason he used that term was that he said that if the treaty is honoured, then people who are not Māori can feel they belong here. Mm. And so this is where the language of tangata tiriti came. And I think it's an important thing for people who are living here who feel as if this is their place that they do have a way of talking about that without stomping on the status of Māori as tangata whenua as the indigenous people of this place Mm. so it isn't 
it isn't meant to be a competitive thing at all. It's meant to be an, a, a de- declaration of being an ally, really, mm-hmm. to turning the, to living in this country honourably. And that, I think, is what the treaty means to me. Mm. That if we can bring this this treaty into a, a profile and and start to honour it properly, then those of us who are not Māori can can work within that framework and have a, a proper relationship with the Indigenous people, which is more respectful mm. than it has been in the past. Thanks for that explanation. I feel like the big question then becomes how is the treaty properly enacted and how are past breaches or injustices addressed? Mm. Um, I know you are really actively involved in many facets of this in your work. Um, Where do you think in the modern era, um, and particularly with the current government, where do you think it stands in terms of what shifts or some of the things that could be needed mm. to see the treaty properly? Mm. Well, I'm very hopeful, but then I am a bit of an optimist. But the current government has made a big shift, uh, in my view, because they are talking about a commitment to the original text of the treaty, which is actually the first time we've had a real recognition that that is an important thing to come to terms with, that actually those of us who are here by right of the treaty um, need to respect the fact that the treaty was actually written in Te Reo and that the meaning of it needs to be understood in that context because there has been uh, an expression in English, an English version we refer to it as, which is, does not really reflect the text in Tereo in, in any complete way. And so um, we're keen to, say, press the pause button and say, let's, let's hear Māori voices, let's listen, you know, as my, one of my sons said something at one time, we've got two ears and one mouth. You know, that's the proportion that I think we need to be using when we come to trying to come to understand the meaning of this this framework for the future that I think is a possibility for us in this country, which does give me a great deal of hope because the old systems are turning out to be not quite so good for the planet. Mm. Um, I think a lot of young people uh, realise that the we've run out of planets. I mean, in the olden days when countries... Uh, used up all their own natural resources. They went off to somebody else's country, colonised it, helped themselves to the resources, and carried on in the same old manner. And now we have run out of countries to colonise. Some people thought we could colonise the moon or Mars, but actually people have realised that that's really expensive and difficult to do. Um, And so maybe we have reached a stage where we can honestly face the fact that we have run out of planets and we need to learn to live on this one. And Indigenous people have got so much to bring to that conversation. You're listening to The Radioactive Show and an interview with Catherine Peat of Network Waitangi, which was recorded in Ototahi, in Aotearoa, New Zealand, in July 2019. 
Having lived most of my life on Wurundjeri country in Nam or Melbourne, I've been living in Otutahi for just six months. I'll share with you now a few more clips from my conversation with Catherine. Yeah, I think listeners um, will probably, listeners who are in Australia, I couldn't help but draw comparisons, even though they're very different contexts. Um, But particularly I know in my home state of Victoria, which is one of the colonial governments there, there is the beginnings of a treaty process. Um, But one parallel that I've noticed already is that it's still seen as um, all Aboriginal business or it's not something that non-Aboriginal people really need to be engaging in discussions or education about. Mm. And I know that's been uh, a point that your organisation has made, that it's not – the treaty is not – all Maori work or all Maori business is kind of often put in that corner. But um, could you could you elaborate on that a little? Like what you feel? Actually, the the Maori don't need the treaty. They are the indigenous people. They belong. That's mm. what tangata whenua means. What indigeneity means. And the United Nations um, has now got a declaration on the rights of indigenous peoples, which while it is still labelled as being aspirational. It is a guide to how to uh, pay attention to the role of Indigenous people. And so that can be done in any country around the world. So that United Nations Declaration is a very important recognition of the place of Indigenous people. But actually, Indigenous people are Indigenous people, and they have an identity which, by definition, links them to the land. Mm. So if we're trying to deal with um, the future, we need to be thinking about what is an honourable way for people who are not Indigenous to be in, in, the, in someone else's land, effectively. Mm. And so I always say that actually Māori don't need the treaty. It's people who are not Māori that need the treaty. And we've been very lucky to have that gift, if you like, from Tangata Whenua to the nation saying you're welcome to come in here if this thing is honoured. And it hasn't been honoured, so that work needs to be addressed with knobs on. But it is really something which I hope other countries can begin to um, recognise the serious um, nature of the value of Indigenous thinking. I'm wondering if you feel there's anything you particularly want to would like to address, Catherine, or... Um, well, I suppose think... that I am an advocate for people organising for change. Mm. You know, if people are moved by anything that we've covered, I think it's really important that they find other people who are also, and that they link the struggles that people have had over the centuries Mm. with this movement of of saving the planet and of um, understanding the wisdom of Indigenous people. And um, so that means for me taking really seriously the establishment of what I sometimes call third sector organisations or organisations that are not driven by a commercial motive or driven by a statutory imperative that the Mm. government says they've got to do by law, 
but who think broadly and think together and come up with an action um, framework for doing stuff, Mm. you know. And I think that this recognition of indigeneity has got such a positive uh, future. Mm. Mm. So it's that organising for change that I think is key. I think for now, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us, Catherine. And how would listeners find out more, particularly about uh, Network Waitangi or any other resources that you think uh, may be of interest? We have a website, mm. and that's probably the easiest place to just go and have us explore, really. Mm. Um, so that is n W O, which stands for Network Waitangi or Tautahi, which is the Māori name for Christchurch in New Zealand. .org.nz. So that's www.nwo.org.nz, and we have an email, and you can just email us mm. and say anything, and we'll <laughs> respond. Amazing! Thank you very much. <laughs> it's a pleasure. I'm Emma Crunch and I've been speaking with Catherine Pete on today's Radioactive show. Catherine works for Network Waitangi. Look them up to find out more about their treaty work. Today's show has been produced in Ototahi Christchurch for 3CR Community Radio, which sits on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation in Fitzroy, Melbourne. We acknowledge their sovereignty, which has never been ceded. Our show can be heard throughout the stolen land called Australia on the Community Radio Network. A big thank you to Friends of the Earth's Ace Collective for their ongoing support of the show. Share and podcast the radioactive show on 3thenumbercr.org.au and you can find us on Facebook. Thanks for listening and here's to a nuclear-free and peaceful future.